This episode of See Here, we'd like to tell you podcasting is a dangerous business. episode of See Here Podcast for 2016, which is uh, episode 24, if my arithmetic is correct. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. My name is Morris. I'm here in Melbourne and across one of the oceans, across many oceans, I'm shit on geography, is uh, Bernie Stickwell in Bath. Across Billy Ocean. Across Billy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, love really. It was, uh, it was a when the going gets rough crossing to get here, I've, I've got to say. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. welcome. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome, Bernie, and uh, across um, some you. other ocean, Mr. Tim Merrill in Seoul. Hey. Hey. Oh, come on, Tim. You know, you, you, we're going to have a lot of fun with this. Now, we were going to as well have the wonderful co-host of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, Mr. Frank Santo Padre. Unfortunately, he's not feeling well, but he has chosen this episode's film for us, and uh, he will be joining us next month. Hopefully, he'll be feeling better. Get better, Frank. Get better, Frank. The film that he has chosen for us is a comedy from 1987, and I know that Tim will dispute whether the term comedy is, is apt, but we're going to have a lot of fun, I think, with this. This is a film from it's 1987. It's not comedy that I'm going to dispute. It's You said film? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 celluloid, oh celluloid. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. 1987's Ishtar, directed by Elaine May, starring Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, and Isabella Gianni. And the writer was Elaine May, with songs in the film written by Elaine May and Paul Williams. In- three, two, three, four, four, two, three, and. These men are pawns. I put a price of 20,000 dirham on their heads. Next, they will be hailed as the true messenger of God. They were just a couple of songwriters who came to Ishtar to break into show business. Easy boy, easy boy. Easy boy. What the hell's the matter with him? Is he blind? Well, yeah, he is, but, but he's in perfect condition. So how do they wind up on everyone's hit list? Life is in danger. Behave normally. We have a gun pointed at your back. No, don't put your hands up, you idiot. My little darling. My little darling. I can't believe these men may control the fate of the Middle East. Where are you? Do it. This is unbelievable. Are the two American messengers of God dead yet? This is the oasis. The Does oasis. this look like an oasis here? Yeah, look at the birds. Are those vultures? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just... Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, Isabella Johnny. Your girl! How did she 
Ishtar, written and directed by Elaine May. <laughs> this is some of our best work. If you go back to an earlier episode of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, you'll hear Paul Williams talk about him uh, writing the songs for this film, as well as many other films and much other stuff. So uh, there you go. So I mean, this film has something already in common with uh, one of your favourites, Phantom of the Paradise, Tim. They both suck shit. What was that? Let's quick give a, a, an IMDb synopsis. Two terrible lounge singers get booked to play a gig in a Moroccan hotel, but somehow become pawns in an international power play between the CIA, the Emir of Ishtar, and the rebels trying to overthrow his regime. Oh, okay, well, so like if Frank were here, I'd ask him why did he select this film and whether he saw it on initial release and what his first thoughts were on it, but he's not here. So um, I'll go round the table. And I'll, I'll, I want to start off positively. So, Bernie, this is your first time seeing it? And if it so, is, a, yeah. What were your initial thoughts? Well, probably like everybody, I'd avoided this purely on its reputation because it's, you know, for a long time it was uh, one of the, the biggest money losers in Hollywood history, apparently. Terrible reviews. You hear nothing but bad things about it. But I have to say, I, I really enjoyed it. I found it funny. I laughed out loud in places. I think uh, Hoffman and Beatty are really great in it. They work really well together. There's good chemistry there. Mm. Isabella Gianni's great in it, although it's kind of odd uh, seeing her in this after watching uh, Possession recently, which is a completely different kind of film and a completely different kind of performance from her. But this is, it's, yeah, it, it's it's a funny movie. The, uh, the It's certainly, you know, I laughed more at this than I did something like The Hangover or something more recent than that uh, purports to be comedy. So um, I really don't uh, understand well, I, I know why it has the reputation it has, but if people had actually watched it and given it a fair shake, I don't think it would be thought of that way. I think it was all uh, studio interference and, you know, what's the word, trying to make the best out of what they perceived to be a bad situation, which wasn't uh, necessarily the case. But, um, yeah, well, I, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. There was a website that I saw that listed a whole bunch of myths and truths about the problems related to the film. I'll, I'll come to that shortly, but I'll, I'll go to you, Tim. You have a right of rebuttal oh uh, where do i start <laughs> oh man well you know i mean i'm with bernie you know where this is a first time watch and i've i'd always seen this you know and the lists you know the turkeys of all time and that kind of thing but there's just endless reasons why this just doesn't resonate with me i mean man this is this is like cinema jail for people that are, you know, they must have done something really wrong to wind up in a film like this. And, and what I find really incredible is that as much as I say this is a cinematic jail, so to speak, it was some people actually broke out of it because Hoffman was able to have a semi-decent career after this film. Beatty, well, Beatty went on to Bullworth and things like that. Enough said the better. I mean, if you look at the stature of... Uh, you know, their celebrity in the 70s, you know, Beatty and Hoffman, if this had been anybody else that had made this film, you would have never heard of them again. That I sort of ended up being the case with Elaine May. This was the last film she uh, directed. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. She was also um, working as a screenwriter. And I, I'm trying to remember, now I'm pretty sure that Heaven Can Wait came well before Ishtar, but where does the bird case? It's about 1980, this? isn't it? 
Yeah. Where, was right. was yeah. the birdcage after or before this? I don't remember. The birdcage was after this. Okay, so she yeah. still had some Hollywood value after this. Right. What I find funny about this film, and I mean, not to go too forward already, but Elaine May, she was part of the comedic team Nichols and May, right? Yes. Yeah. Hello? Information. Oh, no. <laughs> Miss, yes. please return my dime. Sir, I cannot return your dime to you until you hang up. And when you hang up, your dime will be returned to you. No, it won't. Operator, listen to me. I know that sound. I've heard it all my life. <laughs> okay, okay. And yet, this film, to me, is bereft of comedy. And what I find, too, is like you were saying, that the songs were written by Elaine May and Paul Williams, right? Mm -hmm. Hello, hello, baby, baby. Love you, love you, baby, baby. Paul Williams is an established musician, but yet I found this film was really bereft of music. Well, that's kind of the point, though, isn't it? That's. Oh, I know it's the yeah. point. I mean, I mean, I mean, I know it was intentionally bad. Yeah. It was intentionally ridiculous. You know that it was all. It's almost like this. This film is almost like the uh, the Neil Hamburger of movies. <laughs> You know, it's just like, wait a minute, that's not, oh, that's why it is. You know, it's like, yeah. I would kind of agree with you to a certain extent, but I, I think because of that, it either works for you or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess that might be why it tanked, is that it just didn't work for enough people. Well, I actually, and I, th I think Morris is the same, but, you know, I, I laughed out loud at some of this. Some the, of this actually seemed almost uh, uh, kind of ahead of its time comedy-wise, I think. Okay, so I'll, I'll interject at this point. Um, now, I think on a Facebook conversation that we'd held like in the last few weeks, Bernie, and it certainly became obvious watching it, you'd raise the notion that uh, Ishtar was, you know, made basically as an updated version of the uh, Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Dorothy L'Amour road movies. Here we go again, Johnny. We're off on the road to Morocco. This taxi is tough on the spine. Beats the bus, huh, Johnny? Oh, beats me. Where, where, where we're going? going? Why we're going? How can we be sure? I'll lay you eight to five that we meet Dorothy <laughs> Which I think there was an element of that. Also, um, just like to, to sort of point out as well, it occurred to me whilst watching it that this came, you know, only a couple of years after things like Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile. Right. And there right. seemed to be that kind of 80s, mid-80s period where you had these kind of action-adventure comedy movies where, you know, bumbling Americans were in sort of maybe exotic locales and things like that were going on. So I could certainly see an element of that in this as well, mm -hmm. certainly the intention of that. I, I, can, I can imagine that the studio might have said to Elaine May or, or, or indeed to Warren Beatty, who was like, I think, the producer in the film, uh, he might have said, right, okay, it looks like there's a market for nostalgia. But I, and sure. that might have been the impetus, you know, having seen what Romancing the Stone and the Indiana Jones movies were doing. But I like to think that when they approached the writing of the film, they probably went back to the source and watched a whole bunch of road movies. Now, I actually hadn't seen a road movie since I was like a kid. So in preparation, you know, while watching Ishtar, I thought, all right, I'll watch a road movie. So I watched Road to Morocco. And I got to say that for me, watching a road movie was like film hell. Um, <laughs> I, you know, look, I, we've, we've gone and spoke. We're all fans of old comedy, you know, so, you know, we bowed down at the temple of the Three Stooges and the Marx Brothers and, and uh, you know, even love Al Abbott and Costello and uh, and the like. But, Old and Hardy. 
Yeah. Laurel and Hardy, absolutely. You know, there's, yeah. there's all, all clever stuff, and we're not even so like you know going back really early to the. Uh, they're, they're just like the comedy teams. We're not even so like you know the singularly greatness of um, sure uh, of uh, Charlie Chaplin or or Buster Keaton. But mm-hmm. Hope and Crosby, I, I don't know what chemistry. I, I, one of the questions I would have asked Frank, because you know my cinema history going back to then is not that great, but I'm wanting to know. I mean, given that there were seven films, I imagine there was some level of success. But I'm just sort of wanting to know whether uh, historians look back on those films and think that they were anything more than just a bit of you know time killer for for audiences who needed the comedy. I mean, I think Road to Morocco was filmed during the war. So uh, was it always just considered light fluff? Because it sure yeah, as hell did. Yeah. It, it wasn't subversive like, say, like the early Marx Brothers films would have been. Sure, yeah. Um, I wonder if um, maybe, again, not having seen any of the road movies, I wonder how closely Ishtar sort of, you know, sort of emulates that, that format. And again, whether maybe that was one of the reasons it didn't do well. It was just... You know, that format no longer worked once you got past 1950, perhaps, you know? I was going to say that's part of it, but also, you know, they actually had snappy songs in the road movies. That the songs were actually, like you were, we were saying earlier, you know, this is all set up almost like that shtick that Bill Murray used to do on Saturday Night Live, you know, that Star Wars. Ah, Star Wars. Nothing but Star you know that kind of yes. goofiness, like yeah. and but with the road movies, they weren't intentionally trying to be off. I mean, those songs yeah. were actually you know well written, jing- uh, like little jingles that you could you know bop along to, and and uh, the actual this is a key difference as well. Bob Hope comedy was his forte, and Crosby was the crooner. Yeah, and and I mean in this situation, man, you know it's like Warren Beatty couldn't carry a note in a bucket. <laughs> And, uh, and and Dustin Hoffman, I mean, as great as an actor he is, you can't act comedy. I really think that, you know, you have to be able to be funny, not act funny. Comedy is not something that you can you can just kind of try to um, pass off. You either get the beats and you either know how to do that or you don't. I just don't see Hoffman having that. I well, mean, that's, like, that's you know. Where, that's where we're going to have to uh, agree to to disagree I thought he had fantastic comic chops you see Jim all the big record companies want to sign us for an album but right now we're just refining our our, our songs you know so we don't get ripped off by people signing a Garfunkel and you know Springsteen I mean one of my favorite comedy roles of Hoffman was um, Wag the Dog Robert De Niro and yeah, that, Dustin yeah, that was good. That was they, good. And, and, and I mean, not just a great film, but the fact was the two of them were a great comedy team who were not like traditional comedians. They had great timing. They bounced up. Right. And, and to Robert De Niro's credit, he basically said, all right, Dustin, here, you take the comedy. I'll be the straight guy. I'll come in where I need to, but you have the comic jobs. Perfect but there's time. that, um, that uh, story, whether it's apocryphal or not, I don't know. But with De Niro on The King of Comedy, when Rupert Pupkin, you finally see him deliver his comedy monologue at the end. Apparently, people off camera were just having to try and distract him because his timing was so on the money. Yeah. He was actually funny, even though he was trying not to be. <laughs> so they're distracting him to, uh, you know, to make it not work so um right i think de niro's got the, the but, comedy chops as well yeah 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 i was gonna say you're you're right in a way like i mean you know even in little big man i thought 
you know, that Hoffman did have some funny aspects to him. But I think part of it is the script. I, I think that's what it is to me. And also, I think an important part of comedy is who you're playing off. And I think, to me, Hoffman playing off of Beattie, it, it went together for me like Jello and peanut butter. And, and here's another a question for you guys I have, is that did you, while you were watching this, see other people in, in the two main roles? For me, I mean, look, if, if I sat down to think about it for a while, I'm sure I could come up with another team. But I, I guess the fact is I liked what Beatty and Hoffman brought to their roles. Uh, they, right. they had, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily be sort of thinking who else could do this better. I like the fact that they were both, uh, their characters were both goofy. And I mean, that might, be, it's the very notion that they're goofy that might, have turned you off or might turn other people off but I like the fact that they were both goofy and likeable and I personally think that they had great comedy delivery of their lines I just like the fact that you know Hoffman was dumb but Beatty was dumber and right that's but uh, well, you know oh, so I just wanted to bring bring up one more thing while I'm sort of like on that train of thought there is coming back to this whole comparison to the road movies and i liked that yeah. this made this film a distinction the road movie i mean okay i'm only using road to morocco as the only one in recent memory that i've seen but i'm sure they all followed the same pattern where basically bing was always going to get the girl and bob hope was going to probably get the uh cute but not quite as beautiful comedy sidekick girl if anyone at all i like the fact that in this movie spoiler alert neither of them are going to get Isabella Gianni. It's about their friendship. They have things that come in between it, but basically they're limited, they're limited designs on what they want to achieve, what makes success for a musical career. You know, playing a nightclub, <laughs> a full up nightclub in Morocco. Oh, no, well, yeah, it was in Morocco is the pinnacle of success for them, not running away. I mean, basically they both had girls at the beginning of the film, which they lost because they were devoted to their inverted commas art. And I, I, I love, I love that as a fact. And so basically their partnership, their songwriting partnership, their musical partnership is above everything else. And that's what dis they made that distinction from the road movies. And I like the fact because if they'd sort of gone down the thing where the handsome Warren Beatty will get the girl. I, then I would have felt cheated. Then I was, uh, nah, there's too much. There's homage yeah. without, but putting right. Well, we'll put this modern spin on it. It's about the the friendship between these two guys, and I admired that a lot. Well, I remember uh, reading. Probably wasn't around the time, but I remember reading at some point about it. One one of the list many things that are supposedly wrong with the film is that Beatty and Hoffman were cast in the wrong roles and that they should have played the opposite role mm -hmm. so Beatty should have been the Hoffman character because he's kind of like the wisecracking stupid guy but who actually thinks he's clever and thinks he's good with the women and so on whereas BC plays the um you know the, the kind of uh the good-natured sort of dumbass really and uh, right. Hoffman would have maybe been a better fit in that role. Having right. said that, I totally disagree with that. I think uh, they were both perfectly cast, and seeing right. Hoffman as that kind of fast-talking, sort of uh, drive, sort of the shuckster type, it makes right. sense You're 100% correct on that. I mean, that's the joke, is that Beatty, as the handsome exactly. one, has no confidence exactly. with the women. I mean, Exactly. It was perfect. Right. He, he knew but, what he was doing. But you, know, you know who I would have seen that would really fit for me in the Beatty character? Is Steve it? Martin. 
I can see that, but at the same time, it's kind of a bit obvious. Yeah, but Steve it. Martin had that kind of dumbass. Like he played sure. like that, but 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 Steve Martin actually had a musical background to him as well. Sure, yeah. So you know, I could have really seen Steve Martin more uh, than seeing Beatty in that role. That's that's just me speaking is, personally. Like Morris was saying, I don't think I'd, I'd actually want to see anyone else in these two roles. Because the, the kind of, you know, the appeal of, and the allure of the film as such is that it's it was a huge misfire by, by everybody. And right. how can these actors have actually played these parts in this movie? And when you're kind of watching it with all that in the back of your head, I just, you know, I couldn't think of anyone else playing it. That It was part and parcel of the, uh, you know, the right. whole experience. It had to right. be those two guys. Come and watch the, the freak show of these, uh, you know, two respected actors flushing their careers down the toilet in this piece of shit. <laughs> right. Um, oh, you know, which isn't at all, but that that's the kind of prevailing uh, prevailing thought, isn't it? So. Uh, listen, I'll, I'll bring up one, well, one yeah. little financial thing about this film that, that a review I'd read made, that was like sort of making points in favour of Ishtar went and said, said, yes, okay, it was a 45 or $50 million film and it returned $11 million. Now, by any stretch of the imagination, that is a flop. But think about it. That's $11 million worth of tickets. That is still not like five people in some grotty little theatre in a small corner of, of uh, yeah, 42nd yeah. Street, New York. It's still There were people who went to see it, but unfortunately, they just had such a high budget. They put in probably you know too much... That didn't need to be, well, first of all, I guess Hoffman and Beatty's fees for starters. Uh, but Well, but, apparently the fees were that they were both paid, I think, five million, uh-huh. which it was a significant amount, but not a huge amount. Uh, and apparently they both offered to defer their salaries as well when the film was shooting because of sort of budget issues. But the, the powers that be said, um, no, no, keep the money. It was some weird thing to do with Coca-Cola were... Did they own right. the studio? They were looking at buying the studio that made this, so they had money invested so I, in I, it. I think Coca, um, I think Coca Cola didn't they? They already owned Columbia, and they sold right. it off. Did they sell it off to Sony at the time, and Sony refused to promote it, or or something like that? It, I think they sold it off after this because they right. had. It. And, and apparently as well, I think Coca Cola had money tied up in because they did actually shoot in Morocco, didn't they? Yes. Uh, Coca-Cola had money tied up in Morocco, which they couldn't get sort of redacted out of the country. So to offset some of that money they were owed in Morocco, they actually shot there on on um, on location. Does that make sense? I'm sure I read something along those lines. Hmm. But apparently, that, that there was a lot of weird financial things going on uh, behind the scenes, which I, I guess contributed to the uh, the sort of spiraling budget and why it was uh, you know why it didn't make its money back. You really know the lingo. But I'm going to pose a question to you two guys. The first 20 minutes of the film are spent in New York. It's, they don't even get to Ishtar or Morocco until about 20, 25 minutes into the film. That's where the story really begins. We get the first portion of the film where the characters are established, which I think personally is a great thing. I know that there are some films where they say, no, you need to get into it a whole lot quicker than that. But the thing is what makes, for me, the characters so much more sympathetic later on and where you're sort of rooting for them even though, you know, they're, they're schmucks or smucks, as Warren Beatty would have had it. So I said to Will, I said, look, uh, we got to go to New York or, or Nashville because those are the only two places to be if you want to sell songs. Mm-hmm. That's how come... 
I came to New York. Mm -hmm. What a smuck I was. Schmuck. It's not smuck. It's schmuck. Smuck. Schmuck. Smuck. Say shh. Shh. Now say muck. Muck. Now say shh and muck together real fast. Smuck. Closer. You really know the lingo. They spend the first 20 to 25 minutes establishing their characters, establishing their background, so when they get to Ishtar, you're really going to sort of feel a lot more sympathy for them and their plight. And we should probably sort of elaborate a little bit more on the plot shortly. But my question to you two guys is, would you have liked to have seen the film be a different story, that they don't go to Ishtar? It's not this story about the two lounge entertainers who are really shit. It's the whole film is set in New York or, or in America, and it's just a story about these two guys. There's no CIA operatives. There's no rebellion. It's just about two guys who are trying to make a career who have no musical talent whatsoever, and they stayed in America. Would that have worked better as a film for you, Tim? I mean, did you like the first 20 minutes? Well, the first 20 minutes was just like a schmaltzy... I don't know. Like, it just, I just didn't know where it was going. And then it's like Dustin Hoffman out on the windowsill. And I would, I, I would have really liked it, you know, where they, they both basically jumped and that was the end of the film. <laughs> but no, I, it was just, I, I got this feeling like this Steve Martin feeling from the whole beginning of it because it's almost like something like The Jerk, but not quite. But it's that kind of, you know, those romantic comedies that Steve Martin used to do, mm-hmm. like the, like the, the Lonely Guy and stuff sure. like that. Sure. I had, I got a feel, I had a feeling that it was something like that like you know where these two schlubs you know like these two like and then they they both get ditched by women and that the one guy's like i'm a loser and the other guy's like no i'm a bigger loser than you it's like no man i'm the biggest loser you know and it's just like okay we get it you know like <laughs> you know and then you get the that that the, the jewish uh manager the uh yeah, yeah. the booker guy right where he's just like yeah he's just like you know, you guys can go to the Middle East for 75 bucks a week. You know, like, come on, a lot of people would die to, you know, like, do a gig in North Africa. Like, you know, that guy, it's like, okay, okay, you know, they, you know, that's the conceit. They're on their way, off we go, and yada, 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 you know. One thing I wanted to say, and it's too bad Frank wasn't on now, because he, he could elaborate, but maybe you guys had heard when they actually had uh, Penn Gillette on their podcast. Yes, Frank yep. and Gilbert's podcast, where Penn Gillette actually he came in to read for this film. Oh yes, got, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he and he got turned down. So I was kind of curious as to what role Penn Gillette would have played in this, because yeah. actually, interesting. He he would have been too it, young to play the uh, the agent, I would imagine. So maybe one of the CIA guys or something. Right, right. But you know, I was going to say too. Did you guys happen to notice once they get to Morocco? What was his name now? There's uh, the Matt, Gr- Matt Groden character. Uh, no, I no, no, exactly no, Matt Fur. It's Matt, Matt Fur and uh, yeah, Max Hedrick. Yeah, it's him, and also his partner is a guy called Alex Hyde White, 
who right. was he played uh, Mr. Fantastic in the Roger Corman Fantastic Forum movie. Right, 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 right. right. Uh, and he's also in uh, Biggles. Uh, right. I don't know if you've ever seen that, which is... Uh, oh, yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, I love that film. That's a real guilty pleasure of mine, Biggles. <laughs> so, right. uh, yeah, no, I was amazed to see them both in it. And I, I think they're great that when they're kind of shadowing uh, Hoffman and Beatty, as, as a, you know, and then the KGB guy shadowing them all as well, all at the same time doing a very right. good job. It's very sort of slapsticky, isn't it? I met her and I fell. No, cut out, cut out, and I. Oh, you want this one. I, I met her, fell. Yes. I loved her well. Yes. She walked out hell. Yes. Oh, heartbreak. That's it. I want to talk a little bit about the music. I want to re- come back to the music in the film. And I know that, Tim, you said, right, okay, the road movies at least had some semblance of great songs. I'm a firm believer that anyone can write a shit song, but it takes a talented guy like Paul Williams to make a funny shit song, if that makes any sense. The songs in the film, uh, uh, the music, all the music was written by Paul Williams and the lyrics were shared by Paul Williams and Elaine May. And Bernie, you already gone and mentioned that you had a few belly laughs in this film. And I have to say that for me, one of those moments was uh, where they showed uh, the moment early on where the Beatty character and the Hoffman character meet for the first time. I think Hoffman's playing a gig in a restaurant. Yeah. And yeah. there's this uh, couple, I think it's their 53rd wedding anniversary. Yeah. They come <laughs> back for their, come say, back yeah. three years, three years in a row. And he says, uh, I've, it's been so wonderful to have you here. Made a promise that if you came back, I would write a song especially for your 53rd wedding anniversary. And he writes this song called Leaving Some Love in My Will. I promised I'd love you forever A promise I'm planning to keep You'll be well taken care of After I've gone Off to the land of the big sleep I'm leaving some love in my will Yes, I'm leaving some love in my will My life is nearly over And time goes by so fast And I wanted to give you a present To thank you for the past (laughs) It's amazing. Pissed myself at that. It's it's, um, it's uh, so. I mean, the, the looks on their faces. Okay, it's the, the looks, the the sort of the shock horror look that the relatives give while he's singing this. It's it's not a unique thing, but he's so guileless. He doesn't know that this is that's not the romantic. thing, isn't it? He's yeah. And as me, far as he's concerned, he's he's written this fantastic song to the best of his abilities, he, and he's just got no idea how offensive or shocking or just <laughs> horrifying it is it, it, it comes back to that you know that line that he says like uh, a few minutes earlier in the film where he and Beatty because that, that bit's told in the flashback earlier on where uh, in the film where um, the two of them are standing outside a shop window and this sort of dates the film where it has pictures uh, they're looking at a record store and there's pictures yeah. of Paul Simon's Graceland and Bruce Springsteen's live 1975 to 1985 box set and he's saying you know really our song dangerous business is as good as anything that uh, (laughs) simon and garfunkel or bruce springsteen did we just need their management what is it i think they're wonderful telling the truth 
can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. But our song is as good as anything. And they, okay, the line could be delivered by someone and the line could be a shit line. And maybe on paper, you know, the script wouldn't necessarily work, but this is where I truly think of the brilliance of Beatty and Hoffman. They made it work. And yeah. Hoffman, I'm going to keep coming back to this, Hoffman has great comedic chops. He really does. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Morris. I totally agree. Um, did you guys see um, there's uh, some serious uh, Mrs. Robinson, The Graduate connections here, isn't there? The fact that they're obviously Dustin Hoffman was in The Graduate. Mm. Uh, oh, Mike Nichols Mike directed Nichols it. Yeah, directed it. Who was Elaine May's? Uh, I think were they married or were no, they were no, certain? They were, just, they were just comedy partners. So. Oh, okay, all right. And of course, that they keep referencing Simon and Garfunkel throughout Ishtar as well, <laughs> don't they? Oh yeah, yeah, good thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I was sort of hoping that Paul Simon would have made a cameo appearance somewhere in the film. I have to say that my, my favourite uh, song was uh, "Wardrobe of Love." Oh, so good. She said, "Come look, there's a." She said, come look, there's a wardrobe of love in my eyes. Take your time, look around, and see if there's something your size. Yeah. I, I, I love the fact that they're, they're, going through the, they're going through the creative process, and he's, he's yeah. reading, uh, <laughs> was it, come into my wardrobe of love, see if there's... Have a wander around, see if there's anything your size. It's just chewing on the apple, and the both of them are thinking, "Oh, this is this is great! Oh, we we're just rolling with the lyrics here. That's it's it's fine. Oh my goodness, it was so funny." Uh, the film sort of progresses um, and without giving too much away. They effectively, uh, you know, they go to uh, Morocco for a gig, yes, uh, and wind up as kind of pawns in this uh cia plot um, to uh you know keep the uh the sort of dictator in power as it were and some rebels who are looking to overthrow and uh, again having, having said this you know watching it now in the current political climate right it's uh it's kind of interesting it, it takes on a new uh sheen perhaps with uh you know america and uh messing in the middle east and so forth so uh there's a scene where um through various comedy mishaps uh, Hoffman winds up pretending to be an interpreter at a uh, right, <laughs> yeah, you know, a, a, a weapons. Well, yeah, it's a, a kind of weapons uh, sort of auction with a bunch of sort of uh, rebels and warlords and so on buying um, like automatic machine guns out of the back of a, a jeep in the middle of the desert. Right, um, and he has to pretend that he, you know, he knows what he's talking about and that he can speak uh, all these various dialects. How did you guys feel about that scene? I mean, was it funny? Was it was it even slightly racist? Was it? Did you feel a little guilty of laughing about it? Or the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Akia, we want you to close your eyes and put your hands by your side and tell these men that their camels have been stolen. Hmm? Your eyes closed. And no gestures of any kind. Tell this bunch that on the other side of the truck, you saw their camels being stolen. Huh? What was I supposed to say again? Do it. Ay, 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 ay
Okay. Yeah, all of it. All, all of it. It was funny. It was funny. It was racist, and it was yeah. Yeah. But it goes back to what I call the Blazing Saddles principle, though. You know, again, it's a film that was yeah, blatantly racist, but it's funny, and it would never, like you said, it would never be made today. You know, it's just the way it is. Yeah, I don't know. You you kind of say that, and but still, I mean, more so now than ever. A lot of movies, action movies, adventure movies, mainstream Hollywood movies, the bad guys nowadays are just you know generic Arabic. Middle Eastern terrorist types. So right. I don't think, you know, Hollywood's learned too much of a lesson since the 80s, has it? This film tries to be so many things at the same time, but it really doesn't, you know, achieve any of it to me. I mean, you know, it, it wants to be a direct comedy, but there's only aspects of this film that are funny. And then it tries to be, a, it wants to be a musical film, but you know, but as I say, there's there's only aspects of this film that are really semi-musical. And, th- and then I was going to say, then there, and then all of a sudden, there's points in this film where it gets to be dramatic, and, but then it's not even really a drama. And then there's points in this film where you think there's going to be some action, and then it's really just anti- anticlimactic. To me, it, it's a weird amalgamation of all of these things, but it really isn't definitively one of those things. And it's just, it's just, you know, I don't know how you could recommend this film to people because you would say, well, I know you like comedies, but it's not really a comedy. And I, I know you like action movies, but it's not really an action movie. And it's it's just, to me, it just seems like a loose amalgamation of a lot of, of different things. Look, in terms of, I'll address the thing about music first. The difference, say, between this and the road films, and I'll, I'll use that as... A, a target point or a touchstone point because that's what this seems to be the most compared to. The difference is the songs in the road movies are, I've forgotten what the terminology is, but those are the sort of songs where someone just bursts into song. We've had this discussion before about you know, why we don't understand people who say they don't like musicals because no one really bursts into song into real life. I said, you know, that's the conceit of a musical. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Just go with it, roll with it, accept it. But uh, the songs in this film are not cases where the characters burst into song as a substitute for dialogue. They're performance-based songs. And uh, as we keep saying, they're, they're supposed to be dreadful. You don't watch this film for the same reason you watch West Side Story because you're not going to hear an America or a Jet song or anything like that. It's not those type of songs. They're songs that these guys sing within the context of the film, not as a substitute for dialogue. You're not supposed to be coming away humming uh, Wardrobe of Love. or, or, or the, having, having said that, the last couple of days, I've been thinking, see what you think it has been. I've been humming Dangerous Business to myself. And I'm thinking, <laughs> and, and you know what? I reckon that they stole the melody. Well, maybe not intendedly so, but the you, know, you remember the Monty Python's Contractual Obligations album? Yes. Dangerous yeah. Business has the same melody as the song, I Bet You They Won't Play This Song on the Radio. I bet you they won't play this song on the radio. I bet you they won't play this new song. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. 
You think about it. It's it's the same melody. Oh, I'm, I'm surprised mate. no one's gone and raised a lawsuit. But I've been mate. humming that, and I've been thinking, I know this tune. And yep, that's that's when it struck me. There but it is. but yeah, I've been I've been humming that. So there you go. I subjective, I know, but I find that. Uh, an appealing, a stupid, stupid song. It's yeah. just so, it's so it's dumb. But it's it, it's dumb because the two of them think it's they think it's a classic songwriting of the highest order, and that's right. what makes it funny. You know what it reminded me of that song is uh, the beginning of Merry Melodies. You know the uh, overture, cut the lights. Yes, this is it, the night of night. That kind of like old school, that's what it kind of reminded me of, yeah. yeah. I think the music as well, the songs are, um, I don't know if this is exactly the right term, but they're, they're kind of, they're obviously bad, but they're, they're subtly bad because it's not like they're hitting you over the head with how bad they actually are. Like you were talking earlier, Morris, about the first half hour of the film. Yes. And I really enjoyed the first half hour. I thought it was great. I could have watched more of that, or I think it works perfectly as it does in the movie. But, you know, when they're kind of singing and they're writing songs and stuff, you're thinking, hang on, is this serious? Do they not get that that's bad? It's just, it's not obviously in your face terrible. Do you know what I mean? It's not kind of really spelled out for you. You actually have to, there's a point where you decide, yeah. okay, yeah, no, these are meant to be really bad songs. Mm. So, sure. and again, I don't know whether that's one of the things that kind of threw people a little bit with it. And also, I guess, just to sort of uh, ram the point home, there, there are two moments that ram the point home that these songs are supposed to be terrible, but in a way, they're appropriate for their audience. So remember, there's that the first gig Warren Beatty does by himself. He gets joined eventually by Dustin Hoffman, but he starts, yeah. doing, the, he starts doing this gig and he plays. He says, well, I'm going to do the Simon and Garfunkel songbook for you. Do you have any Simon and Garfunkel requests? And the audience is equally awful. They say, yeah, play the Yellow Rose of Texas. Yeah, play yeah, that's, that's, that's Amore. Play YMCA. <laughs> So their audience is just as terrible as, as they are. That's it. But, but They're getting a, what they deserve. But there's another point, I think, and I think this is deliberate. Uh, there's one very early on in the film where they sort of have a flashback. I've got to say, I didn't think the flashback was needed. I think they could have sort of gone in consecutive order showing how they met, why they met, why they bonded without that being a flashback. But, you know, that's, for me, a minor point. But in the point where they start to go into the flashback and they're both in a bar trying to contemplate whether they should even stay together because they've had such bad luck, you hear Frank Sinatra singing One for My yes. Baby and One for the yeah. Road, which is a great song. And it's a complete contrast to everything else that they've done. And it sort of reminded me of that bit in Ed Wood where Johnny Depp, uh, as Ed Wood meets Orson Welles, and the irony sure, is, yeah, you know, yeah. he's a shitty filmmaker, and he, apocryphally or not, meets his hero, who's you know acknowledged as one of the greatest filmmakers ever, and he thinks he's in his league. And I just sort of got that vibe at that moment that they probably know that One for the Road is a great song and everything that they do is in the same league and it's destined to be in the great mm. songbook in years to come. Just yeah. as only they've been given the choice. I, I sort of want to bring up one more thing about... We're, we're talking about what this sort of film could be compared to and, you know, you sort of already brought up, Bernie, that there was a comparison to 
the other sort of adventure comedies of the 80s. And it's objective yeah. whether it works know, yeah, as, yeah, as well. Yeah. I sort of thought of another film, and I will acknowledge, uh, well, at least for me, this film is not in the same league as this film, but I'm sort of thinking back to 1973-74, Peter Bogdanovich's What's Up, Doc, which to me is a real consistently funny screwball comedy. I know that uh, mm-hmm. Terry Frost is not a big rap for it, but I've watched What's Up, Doc countless times, and for me, I still crack up. And this is not in the same league as that, but I, I wonder if they were aiming as well for a screwball comedy like that. A tri- or a tribute to uh, the films of the 40s, uh, bringing up Baby or something like that as well in, in the comedy that they were going mm. for here, regardless of whether it was successful yeah, maybe. or not. I'm maybe. just wondering if that was their target. I don't know. Yeah, possibly. I think you could uh, you could read that into it. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah, it's it's interesting with Ishtar. It's, it's very much of its time. You know, this could have only been made in the mid-80s. And yet, looking at it now, it feels completely alien for that period you imagine people watching it then and it just it, yeah i don't know it's and because you've also gone it's great... of its time but out of time as well, well if that makes you're sense. right bernie absolutely because yeah. i mean back then you know people would be watching it you know like you say it's alien they'd be watching and saying well what the hell is this yeah. and then even today you can sit and watch it and say well what the hell is this <laughs> well look you know i mean one of the things that it does and it might be too way too mild for it to succeed because I, I take your point Tim that well it's not quite this and it's not quite that and maybe they just sort of dipping their toes in the water I mean for Bernie and myself what they did do was very successful but one of the toes that the, one of the waters that they dipped their toes into was into satire of we've already said the American foreign policy sure, and, that, and so yeah. there's, that, there's that great line with a CIA operative says to the Emir of Ishtar, while they're sort of uh, discussing about, you know, there, there was like an attack on the two guys, and they say, uh, they were your men, they were using the Kalashnikovs, we sold you. Yeah. <laughs> that, that one line, it's, it's, a yeah. Bri- it's brilliant social satire, and it says more than maybe whole modern films actually do, and I, I just thought it was, right. a, it was funny, and it was a great bit of satire as well. Charles Grodin, who plays the, uh, the CIA operative, um, I think he's fucking brilliant in this. Yes, He's really, really good. He's just got that kind of deadpan humor and that that kind of those those dead eyes as well. In that, you know, he did kill you in a second. He, he really plays it well, I think. And I mean, I'm not going to spoil it for those that are really, you know, have an obsession to see this film. But but with but with the ending, it was like, you know, I thought this is all going to lead to something. This is all going to lead to something big. Like, it has to, because, you know, it's like once, it, it you know, does. Isabel. It does. No, but their, hold, their dream yeah, is true, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But hold on, hold on. Let me let me elaborate on what I'm going to say is that, you know, they meet Isabella Johnny, and then it's like, okay, you must give me your passport. You must do this. You must go, like, you know, blah, 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 you know, and there's all this stuff. And then, you know, at one point, they're stuck out in the desert. And something's going to go down, and it's like, okay, you take this, you take this, you take this. And then it's just like, meh, nah, okay, that, that's over, you know? It just seems, it just, there's no payoff in the end of it. I mean, like, there's no, you know, it just seems like, you know, yay, we all succeeded, the end, you know? like It, it's, it just, it is fairly abrupt, the ending, isn't it? But Yeah, it was yeah. so limp. Yeah. It was just so limp. I, I, thought, I thought I was expecting... At least some type of action. Not, not you know. I mean, obviously, again, it's not an action film, 
but I was expecting some type of, you know, at least, you know, wrap up, not yeah. how they succeed, but a kind of a wrap up of all the, uh, of all the, the world that they were kind of trying to establish. So, you no, know? I, I can understand that. It, it does feel quite hurry, doesn't it? I was maybe expecting a little more after that, that sort of confrontation right. that you're talking of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I was, what comes you know, to light after that? It's who knows? Just like, maybe, yeah, maybe, okay. that's on, maybe that's on the cutting room floor of the director's cut. Apparently, pretty much behind the scenes, everybody was kind of not getting on with each other. I think both uh, BT and Hoffman were not getting on with uh, Elaine May, were they? And apparently all three of them had editing teams sort of preparing their own cuts of the film. Hmm. So um, it'd be interesting, you know, what was left out and what wasn't. Apparently, Elaine May shot something like 103 hours of raw footage. So there was obviously a lot more that... uh, And that's probably what contributed to $55 million uh, budget of the film. I read an interview with with Dustin Hoffman that I think as recently as 2008, they had like a, a screening of the film in, uh, was it the Wiltshire Theatre or something like that? And he said, oh, I wish I'd been invited. I still love that film. So for the record, regardless of how it ended up being edited, um, he still yeah. has a lot of affection well, I, I think all, all three of the main players do. I think Warren Beatty will say the same thing. And I think Elaine May, even though it pretty much destroyed her directing career, you know, I, I think she's uh, she's only has good things to say about it as an actual film. Maybe not the process which got to the film, but, <laughs> you know, the finished product. So. I'm not saying I'm not saying any of them are liars, but I mean, but when you <laughs> put your name on something, you have to own it. And, you know, yep. I mean, when you're when you're that visible and I mean, the thing is, too, how many shitty films slip under the radar these days? Tons yeah. of them. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and I mean, today in this age of direct to video or, you know, everything winds up on Netflix or whatever. Like there are so many things just just like I say, flip under the radar and uh, nobody makes any note of it. But when this came out, man, this was just like, you know, yeah big big red big red light yeah big red light on top of it and you know it's just like you know you couldn't put any more attention on this film than you know it's not possible it almost feels like again i think the studio were not satisfied with it and didn't know what to do with it it almost feels like right that was some kind of strategy on their part this film is so bad you won't believe it they were actually trying to get people through the doors to see it for that reason yeah, it could be. I was going to say, Tim, it wouldn't be like Dustin Hoffman, if he'd gone the other way, would have been the first actor two years after the fact disown a film. I mean, you know, tons of actors have gone into yeah. you know, once, once the initial promotional appearances on breakfast shows TV around America are finished, years after the fact that no, no financial investment in it, they can look back and maybe, uh, you know, if they want to be polite about it, they can say, well, you know, it wasn't the best film. But, do you, you think, know, uh, he, do you think Ewan acted... McGregor and Samuel L. Jackson have good things to say about the Star Wars prequels these days? Oh, I'm sure they well, do. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not so sure. <laughs> They're probably thinking, shit, why were we in those and not in the new one? Fuck. Um, but they... so, any final thoughts? I think we've probably gone and said as much as that we can say. I think the, the listeners out there sort of know where the three of us stand on the film. But any oh. any final final close down? Like, is, tell me, Tim, was there one point of a film that you could say, "All right, I really liked that bit. The rest of it was shit, but I liked this moment in the film." The credits? <laughs> no, no. To be to be fair, I I, I did laugh at the uh, 
you know, when Hoffman's out in the desert, and he's like, Kareem, Kareem, you know, and then we're yeah, yeah. Abdul Jabbar. Yeah, that was funny, okay? But it, it, to me, this is just like, you know, this was a kind of a film that your parents, you know, like on a Sunday afternoon, your parents would want to sit and watch a movie with you. And they, you know, and your dad would be chuckling at it. Your mom would be chuckling at it, and your dad would be poking you in the side with his, poking you in the ribs with his elbow. Huh? Huh? Did you get that? Did you get that? Huh? You know, it's like uh, you know that kind. Of, you're like, yeah, dad, I got it. You know, well, all right. Funny, you know, like you know, funny you mentioned. Well, that's that. a, an interesting thing as well, Tim, because if we saw this, I mean, if Morris and I saw this when it originally came out, do you think we would? be talking about it this fondly now do you think you know, you know we are I, the best I, part I 30 think, years later i think i would have yeah i don't know it, it's humor is of a type that i think i i have always liked it's uh, it's old-fashioned in that way and i mean look there there were the there were the modern touches which you know weren't out of place in the 80s which you'd never do now so like there's that mm-hmm. bit um where um uh, isabella johnny is with warren Beatty in uh, in his room and she's basically she's trying to get her suitcase back from him and uh he thinks she's a guy uh because of the way that she's dressed and he attacks her and uh says you know you you got my friend's passport and and um and she's trying to explain her cause and he wraps his arms around her to hold her back and she's explaining very seriously her cause and the first thing that comes out of his mouth is are these breasts are these breasts and yeah. <laughs> it was just it was yeah. so unexpected it was, but, yeah. and that wouldn't be done today the other part where uh, Hoffman was in the airport yeah with yeah, her, yeah. It's right it's like you're a dude and all this no she lifts up her shirt it's like what like no <laughs> definitely not oh i got to say quickly tim when they arrive at the airport in um in morocco yeah. Do you not think Dustin Hoffman looked just like Alan Vega out of Suicide with the red shirt? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. The white jacket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, absolutely, oh my God. absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, right. you know, and then you got that one kid in the middle where they're in Morocco and he's like, you know, do you want some spice for the mind? I got yeah. hashish. I got like, it's like, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. I get it. Not you know, but I mean. Guys. There was those goofy, those goofy comedies that came out in the in the eighties that were how can I say they weren't co- they were comedies but they weren't comedies like there was those it was a weird era I mean like for example you had that film that Jeff Goldblum and uh, Cindy Lauper did that vibes yes yeah 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 you know there was that there was that weird film about psychics in love. Yeah. And then there was, uh, and then there was that other film with uh, that Steve Martin did with Lily Tomlin, All of Me. There was it was an era of uh, really kind of obtruse comedies, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Where there was a- in to take more risks and do things that were more kind of off the wall and and uh, and strange in that respect. And yeah, I guess you know some some of them worked, some of them didn't. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I think. I think this one, it's a mess, I'll admit that, but um, its I think it's a funny mess. I think the fact that it is a mess kind of adds to its charm in a way. Mm. Right. Um, I think that the, the comedy works, and I think if anything, uh, as I was saying a little earlier, 30 years later, I think it works better now than it probably did at the time. Uh, and, of course, again, being you know the three of us kind of old farts and uh, we were in our <laughs> sort of teens and so forth in the 80s, 
I, I think you can't help but watch something like this through that sort of prism of nostalgia as well. And I think that sort of had a certain uh, feel to it as well. So I'd, I'd thoroughly recommend it. I, I'm, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I, I would actually recommend it to people, Tim. Unlike you, um, I would say check it out. Don't be scared. Oh, hey. the only, the only, I've only got one word to say, and that's pineapples. But <laughs> I don't know what you mean. No, neither do I. Yeah. Oh, you want to watch Pineapple Express? No, I don't think so. This is funnier than Pineapple Express. I haven't. I wouldn't know. Um, but I, yeah, I, no, yeah, I have said that Pineapple Express is quite good. I quite like that. But fair enough. Yeah. Um, Sorry, no, go on. I, I'm with I'm with you, Bernie. I'd, I'd give this a complete thumbs up. But I will look. I'll give a reservation in that I'd be careful who I necessarily recommended it to. There are you know there are some people that say right. I, I know this is not going to be. If you bad. like, if you if you appreciate the friendships, yeah. As I was saying. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, if look, you enjoy I, comedy, maybe you shouldn't watch this. <laughs> Deary, hang on, I thought you liked it. I'm being Tim. Yeah, no, I'm being Tim for a second. Oh, right, of course, yes, okay. I enjoyed it. I'd recommend it to some people, not necessarily recommend it to others. Uh, I know that one other fellow <laughs> in our uh, Facebook group, uh, Rodrigo Obom, has said to me, I saw this years ago. I really like it. Um, shame on me. People, uh, I'm, I'm supposed to uh, actually think it's shit, but uh, I actually really enjoyed it, so far as I recall. And so I think, all right. So, He's, yeah. uh, Rodrigo is a man of taste and erudition, though. So, 100%. Uh, yeah. He makes the, Absolutely. Best, He's he on makes the, the best film posters ever, as you would appreciate. Heck, yes, he does. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so there you go. There's our discussion on Ishtar. Watch or don't watch. Uh, but um, yes, we, 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 two two thumbs up. Don't watch. And and yeah, well, yeah there's evil, evil Tim. <laughs> so yeah, um, two right. thumbs up and a pineapple. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be our rating system from now on, I think. All right. Yeah, so, fruit, yeah. different types of fruit. Yeah, yeah. So next month, let's talk about next month. Now, Tim was so distressed about having to watch Ishtar, he's basically told us he needs next month off. So, uh, Tim, right. you, you go have a, a, a lie down in a Bex, and uh, Bernie and I will carry on. But we have two special guests for us um, joining us next month. The film that uh, I think it's my pick for next month. And basically, oh, okay, so I should say, originally we were going to cover the uh, documentary Colour Me Impressed about the replacements as um, requested previously by Eric. And my huge apologies to Eric. We're going to leave that till March now because I think. We'd love to have Tim across on that discussion. So I thought, right, well, what are we going to do for February? And I read an essay that had been written on the Gentleman's Guide Facebook page, written by a common contributor to the page, Tish Greer. And I just love what she had to say about 2015's Love and Mercy, the film about Brian Williams. Uh, Brian Williams. Brian, Will- <laughs> Brian, <laughs> Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Thought, Brian Williams is uh, Paul Williams' younger brother, I believe. He's uh, been right. <laughs> trying to break into the soundtrack business for years, but indeed, indeed, he's 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 little <laughs> he's little swan, little swan. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, so anyway, no, uh, love and mercy about Brian Wilson. She wrote a really insightful essay. So I reached out to her and said, "Look, I don't know if you've heard our podcast before, but this is what we do, and we'd love to have you come on and discuss love and mercy." Uh, with us if you're, you're so up for it. And she said, yes, I'd love to. Basically because our uh, good friend Frank Santo Padre was uh, not available to uh, discuss this month due to ill health. But he said, I'd like to come back somewhere down the line. And I know uh, from his 
shortened uh, Gilbert and Frank's Amazing Colossal Obsessions episode where he professed his love for love and mercy. I said, well, would you like to join us in February when you're feeling better and you can expound at uh, greater length about it? So basically it's going to be Bernie, myself, Frank and Tish talking about love and mercy in uh, February 2016. So hope you can join us for that one. If you want to join the Facebook page, just look us up. Um, we're at uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here. If you wish to uh, send us an email, you can write to us at podcast at gmail.com. We love getting correspondence. Uh, I think we've had one or two over the uh, two years that we've been. Oh, this is our second, an- our second anniversary. Happy birthday, guys. Um, oh, happy birthday! Happy yeah. birthday to me! Happy hey. birthday! To we, we've made it. We've made it through two years. It's uh, very, very exciting. Wow! And people said it wouldn't last. Yeah, they, 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 they did. But we kicked them in the nuts. And, we did, and we, just to spite them. Indeed, <laughs> and, and uh, we, yeah, okay. we, made, we made them watch Ishtar. Yeah. <laughs> no, we made and them the watch apple. and the apple and, and kiss meets the phantom of the park. Oh, holy moly! <laughs> holy moly! And hated. And hate you. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. So, you know what? The next... We'll, we'll try to make it that the next three shows or so... We can't promise beyond that. Let's make the next three shows films that we all will have something positive to say. Or, or not. I don't know. Whatever. Um, yeah, no. Be careful with that sort of promise, Morris. All right. Okay. I, I, make, no, I, make, no, <laughs> I make no promises. All right. It's me and Tim you're talking to here. Yeah, so. yeah. All yeah. right. Fair, fair enough. All right. Well, anyway. So, uh, there you go. There's the contact details. Thanks very much for listening. And until February, we wish you good film watching, good music listening, be nice to each other, and uh, we'll speak to you in February. All the best. Pineapples. Goodbye. Oh, you. Oh, 
Thank you.